Good day, America, and hello, world. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work, the work wonk. Your audio guide to the workplace here. Early in 2009, important subject. We're continuing with our discussion of human capital last week with Laird Post, capturing the people advantage today with Jeff, with uh, Randy Street, who, along with his partner, Jeff Smart of Smart GH Smart, which is a management assessment firm, talking about how to identify, not necessarily recruit in the executive search method, but to identify the right kind of talent for your company, how you bring that person on, and how you make sure that that person is going to fit right with what the outcomes that are anticipated. It's a very nuts and bolts, very real issue that we face here in re-emerging America, re-emerging corporate America, re-emerging governance. Everything old is new again, or everything old is really old, and we're starting from scratch, if you will. In many cases, we are. And here on McLaughlin at work with the background of the McLaughlinCompany.com, that's my company, Paul McLaughlin, where we advise small businesses, small and medium-sized businesses, and quite some quite large and not-for-profit organizations on how they can better put together their management teams. I'm knowledgeable about the subject matter. I've known Jeff Smart for years. This is an important subject in general, and in specific, it's something that uh, very much interests me, which is how you put these teams together, because who is in fact what America is up against right now. It's who's going to be our leader. We've chosen one. What team is he going to put together? And he's put together some, a, a team which America in general has a confidence in and about. They seem to have some devil's advocates on that team. We're going to talk a little bit with uh, Randy Street about the importance of having that element. Leadership and uh, the failure of leadership uh, in 2008. There'll be treatises written on what happened in 2008. The confidence that the com- country, uh, for the sake of greed and markets and capitalism, perhaps misplaced. Perhaps that uh, leadership was also, uh, how does one put it, uh, a failure? Absolute abject. Abject uh, means total uh, leadership failure. We may still be seeing that, although it is our contention here on McLaughlin to work that we don't know where we're going. We are in such uncharted waters that it is unclear Uh, where the problem lies and how far down we have to get before we hit rock bottom. We're still finding our way to rock bottom, much like a geologist perhaps trying to find oil and penetrating through those layers of rock to find the real thing. McLaughlin at work here, Paul McLaughlin, working with you today on the issue of who? The McLaughlin Company, also in the business of helping you put teams together, build the strategy, and as important, the communications associated with getting that message out as to how your company is going to reemerge in this economy, which gave rise to McLaughlin at Work, the internet radio show. We've been going on now for some four years. Delighted to pick it up here in 2009. Listen up, Randy Street. Let's start with Randy Street, the individual, as president of GH Smart Learning. Uh, GH Smart Executive Learning. What is GH Smart, the company? What do you guys do now in the past, if you will, if we can, if we can draw an invidious comparison to the way we were as opposed to the way we're going to be? Sure. Randy yeah, Street. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for uh, for hosting this. I appreciate the time. 
So GH Smart was founded uh, in the mid-90s. You mentioned Brad Smart, who is Jeff Smart's father. And actually going back in time even further in the 80s, he was one of the consultants working with Jack Welch. And we've all heard of, of Jack Welch's... Uh, Before Jack Welch was Jack Welch. Exactly. Yeah. He was, he was uh, on that rocket ship with him. And uh, Brad's claim to fame was helping Jack really think through what an A, B, and C player were and how to really think about talent in a, in a disciplined way. So in the mid-90s, Jeff Smart, his son, was earning his Ph.D. dissertation, and he wanted to prove, does this stuff actually work? It gets a lot of press. Hey, Dad. <laughs> Dad, <laughs> yes, there's a little bit of that. I, I would Brad, like to Dad. find out. Yeah. <laughs> so he used private equity as his uh, sample set, and he asked the questions, how do private equity firms value CEOs and does it really matter? Does it matter if you have a great CEO or not? Now I, I have to interrupt because McLaughlin work goes out to a very broad audience. Some, uh -huh. some may know the vocabulary of which you speak, and others want to be introduced to it. So okay, sure. private equity are now not as considered in such lofty terms <laughs> as it was. Right, and once upon a time, once upon right. A this time. is the pre and post two thousand eight bundling of capital, which would then be invested in a private way as opposed to the public market. Correct, that's right. And they have a certain, uh, they had a certain cachet. They uh -huh. still do. Yeah, um, tarnished recently, somewhat, maybe. Uh, as recently as today, when Yale University announced that its endowment was down twenty five percent, that did not change their investment philosophy which was going to continue to in, invest in alternative investments. Correct. An alternative investment being one that is not uh, as regulated or predictable or treasury. So if treasury markets are getting 1% return, you've got to find an alternative uh, to that. But back in the days when, when uh, Brad, was, uh, Brad Smart was working on this issue with private equity, it was still a, a relatively rough-hewn, uh, nascent activity. It really was. Right. So the whole notion that you could really get predictive when you looked at a person, when you interviewed a person, was right. a foreign concept. And, right. it, and Brad wasn't just working with CEOs. It was all levels sure. of an organization. Yep. When you make a hiring decision, is it a good one or not? And as, as, uh, if you go back in management literature, you can go back to Peter Drucker and even before that. Uh, management guru Peter Drucker, of course, who um, recently passed away in the past couple of years, but who really wrote the book on management, uh -huh. he argued uh, that 50% of all hiring decisions were mistakes. Right. 50%, half. And study uh, after and, study and, has and, substantiated and, that and, and over the years. Just interrupt and, and to put in the same statistic can be said about marriage. <laughs> well, there you go. It's a good. So and, not, and in fact, hiring and marriage have a lot of similarities, don't they? Please. <laughs> so you know, it's, that is an interesting uh, parallel street, that I'd never Randy noticed. Continues. <laughs> right. So Peter had it right, but what the hell? <laughs> 50, 50. Peter Drucker had it right. Fifty-fifty. It's a flip of a coin. And hello, darling. Uh, <laughs> Jeff wanted to find out: Is there really a way to do this better? And, and is what my father has done over at GE? Does that really work? And so he looked at private equity firms because you could, uh, excuse me, at the portfolio companies, so the companies that these bodies of equity were investing in, and he, he asked the question, how do we think about the people on the front end of that investment, and then how does the deal turn out? So five years later, did the, did the company, yeah, did it grow or shrink? What happened? What's the outcome? And, and that's a very discreet period of time that he could measure, and he proved that, yes, indeed, 
you can employ a method of hiring and selecting people, whether it's the CEO in the organization or, or on down, with a 90% success rate versus that 50-50 we talked about. Okay. And, and, and as is our way to interrupt you, but I will continue to do that. But on, on occasion, I'll at least give you a facial expression. Bill <laughs> Please, said, interrupt here away. Here comes an interruption. <laughs> um, it is interesting that in, the, in financial services now, right. what they are talking about is compensating people for outcomes. Right. As opposed to paying for paying them for doing the deal. So mm. if you it, about now, time, about time. Uh, one of the contentions here uh, from my experience with investment banking in the past, getting getting back to the outcomes, is that people will follow uh, a compensation pattern, particularly in they they will do what they are rewarded to do. You bet. And so I, I Randy Street, who is is steeped in now uh, in this method of you can you can choose and be better selecting to better outcomes by hiring the right people. Um, I think that that's one of the compensation issues that maybe we can talk about in determining outcomes of who's the right person. You have to know what you're incenting them to do, which is part of presumably what you all have been doing. Absolutely. But get, get, get us through there the 90s, what Jeff and you have put together in what really is, is a much broader combine now than just hiring. Sure. And then we can come back to this, this notion of outcome-based hiring and exactly. how compensation links in. Uh -huh. Which is for 2010 and beyond. Ah, there <laughs> you go. We're in this inflection point. <laughs> right. Right. So Jeff earned his Ph.D. proving this out. And what happened from there, really, as you would imagine, once, once you publish something like that, it got people's attention. Right. And those same firms that were in the study started calling on him and said, Jeff, come help us. Help us think about the people in this organization when we make an investment. Right. Are they the right people or not? Jeff had no intention of doing this for a living. Right. It just happened. Yep. Uh, people have a lot of pain around their hiring. So Jeff got in the business of helping them assess. Ease the pain. It, ease that pain. That's yep. right. Let's, let's back the right teams. Right. Let's get the right people in the right seats on the bus, as right. Jim Collins of uh, Good to Great fame says. Right. And that's pretty much how he ran the business uh, for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then along the way, I joined, mm -hmm. and one observation I had was, well, wow, you know, a lot of these CEOs and executives and managers we sit down with, on the receiving end of this assessment process where we're interviewing them for the job, right. when they get the job, they turn around, they started turning around and asking us, can you teach us how to apply those tools internally? Uh -huh. So rather than relying on you as a consultant teach us how to hire right. more effectively. So we can do it ourselves. So we can do it ourselves. Or and at least be more sensitive to the issues. Either uh, way. One of, one, of the, um, one of the initial sensitivities in for, and, and the reason that um, I'm speaking to Randy Street, and always reminder, Paul McLaughlin here, McLaughlin at work, uh, delightful conversation, I might say, because I, I know something about it, but I don't know it to the extent that, that Randy and Jeff Smart have, have done. Um, that this whole process, uh, w one of the elements is the reason that uh, Randy and, and, and Jeff in part wrote the book is that people would hire them to do this. And, and that, in fact, is one of the uh, initial decisions that uh, what outside, what outsourced, what, who do I hire to help me with this process if I think I can't do it as effectively myself as by bringing in somebody else. Yeah. and, so, and but, e but even to your point, the people the executives who you have helped bring in, they want to be smarter, if you will, about this entire process, 
which is which is Byzantine at best. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> we, we we call it voodoo hiring in our, in our book, uh, methods that don't work. Yeah. You know, we rely on our gut. We rely on our spouse. We, we interviewed a number of executives for this book project who said, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing, so I just take the candidate to dinner with my spouse. Yeah. And, and that, that's how the decision gets made. It, it is Byzantine. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That's often how the, offer, the uh, executive suite is also designed, however. <laughs> it may be. <laughs> Which, colors, maybe desk, that could right. be a good thing. You never know. Uh, <laughs> At 50-50. You never could, yeah. <laughs> it could be 50-50. That's right. Get rid of the, right. rid of the wife. <laughs> Uh, and in truth, we actually wrote the book almost as evangelists. Okay. Uh, I mean, if, to the extent that that companies hire us to do it, that's great. Obviously, we're a commercial enterprise, and, and that's wonderful. But it pains us, pains us to see how many managers struggle with their hiring, and it impacts every portion of their life, their career, their financial success, even their personal life. Because when, you're, when you've got the wrong people on your team, You've got nothing but pain. You can't go on vacation. You're checking your, your uh, email all night long. It's impossible to break away from work, given how fast-paced we are, if you don't have the right people. Right. So there was an evangelistic element to this of, you know what, we have, we have found a, a cure to this problem. Yeah. Let's get it out there. Let's let people kick the tires on this uh, and, and release some of that pain and well, become more productive. Uh, having met Jeff over the years, I think Evangelist is, is a very reasonable. He found, he found that he had a solution, a little bit like what I consider McLaughlin at work, has yeah. a, a way of, of communicating, messaging. And here he can, um, he can teach, and you're helping us learn how to do it better uh, not the same as uh, not the same as is if we hire GH Smart, but there are certain things that will allow people to make better decisions, and I think that's what about management books, management gurus, the Druckers of this world. What they help they help really people how to think. Right, that's right, and and that kind of gets back to that earlier point about outcome based hiring. So one of the biggest mistakes in that Byzantine process that you referred to is we, we, we developed these giant job descriptions. In fact, a story that comes to mind, I, I used to run a sales and marketing team and I noticed that every salesperson I tried to hire didn't have any interest in looking at my job descriptions, right? They wanted to see the comp plan, right? Because they weren't going to be paid based on a job description. They were going to be paid based on that comp plan. And, and if there was a, a misalignment, they knew that the organization really hadn't thought it through. Right. And the very first... And, two, and, what, and the reason they wanted to work for your sales organization was to make money. To they, make they money, might, yeah. They may have liked what you were selling. Sure, but um, ultimately... But they, weren't, they weren't the same as the evangelistic element that is that's very true. That's very true. That's very true. And I, you know, I think that all of us at some level want to make sure we're being taken care of for the work that we do. And it was a fair question. And in fact, if... If the, you know, I was really honest with myself, the job description and the comp plan didn't really match up. The very first tool we introduce in this book is this concept of a scorecard where you throw the job description out the window and instead you lay out very clearly what the mission for the role is. So why even hire a person in the first place? Right. And then what are the three, four, five, eight outcomes that you want to see that person accomplish in the role? Not the inputs, not the activities, not the duties and responsibilities, the results, the outcomes. And That's it, what you want to hire for. Right. Uh, it, it, almost the expectations. Because you, you, as the hirer, very often in the past, um, might have had expectations which you weren't prepared to share. And you sort of 
hid them, buried them. <laughs> right, the right, structure. which is I, the opposite of what you this need is to what do. what I really want, but I'm not yeah. going to write that in the, no. in, the, in, the, in the job description because the job description is a much more of a, it really is a template. Yeah, that's it. And a lot of managers will just go out to the internet and copy and paste a good-looking job description and say, all right, here's my job description. Or, and it, it's really ineffective. Or what they will do is go to HR and, and, and pull from the repository. Pull from the repository because, uh, to your point, I think most people have envisioned as expectations or a profile that they simply couldn't get down on paper. Right, right. Impossible. And and frankly, uh, to sit down and take what's in your heart and in your mind and try to get it to paper, it's difficult. Yeah. But if you instead say, oh, hey, you know what, forget that. What must happen for me to be successful, for this business to be successful? Yep. What are the, the, the business outcomes, right. the results that I'm looking for? That's an easier thing to think about. Right. Not, so that's the scorecard. That's the scorecard. That's where right. you start. You can't hit a target if you don't know what the target is. Yeah. And I think half of those... You know, that 50-50 hiring failure rate is we, we simply have no idea what we're actually hiring for. Right. So instead, we go out looking for that general all-around athlete that we right. think, well, they'll just be able to figure out whatever it is. Right. And, uh, and we live in a world that's just too complex. There are too many nuances in business. You've got to hire the specialist who's the right person for the right role. Uh, and everybody is great at something. Your job as a hiring manager Figure out what something is you need them to do right. and go find that person. Right. That's your A player. Right. And this, uh, the scorecard, is there a, is the, you're not talking about hiring a commodity. Never. I mean, so, so yep. you're, you're, We're talking about hiring human beings, which human is never beings, a commodity, right? No, Everybody has isn't. unique skills, unique, um, unique talents. They bring different things to the table. And, and it is a reflection also, that scorecard, is a reflection of the hiring person. Sometimes I think we hire, we, we get behind an entity and we think that the entity hires, but in fact we are rewarded because some person thinks we're doing a damn good job right. or a piss poor job. Right, that's right. <laughs> and, that, and they will uh, compensate or reward accordingly. Yeah, our careers are made and broken on the people we put around us, ultimately. And this is true in business, it's true in politics, it's true anywhere you look. Think of a sports team. It's all about the people you put on that team. It makes or breaks it, and uh, ultimately, the people who work well together, from a chemistry standpoint, are the are the teams that win. Right. So clearly, and as you build the scorecard, it's not just the business outcomes. That's where you start, but then you have to look at the chemistry with you as a hiring manager. You've got to look at the culture. In fact, in our studies, thirty six percent of all hiring failures resulted from a cultural mismatch. Not a talent gap, but right. a cultural mismatch yep. with, the, with the company. So you can have a perfectly talented person who just doesn't fit the company. And to your point, you could have a perfectly talented person who you don't get along with, and the right. chemistry's wrong, you're going to have a failure. And the, um, I, I want to hold the chemistry issue, because I'm not sure that, <clears throat> I'm not sure that somebody can, um, it, well, let me ask the question. That's not an element in the scorecard. Well, we, in the scorecard, we advocate first the outcomes, and the second piece is competencies. Okay. And competencies are the skills, the behaviors, the attitudes that are important. And as a manager, you've got to sit back and ask yourself, what kind of people, just uh, personality-wise, uh, behavior-wise, am I looking for? Am I a, um, a hands-off manager who needs a self-starter? Well, I better have a self-starter. You know, self-starter is on my list of competencies. Mm -hmm. 
am I a uh, you know opposite extreme micromanager who's going to be all over this person? Well, I need somebody who's flexible, <laughs> right. or or somebody who's willing to allow that behavior from my standpoint. Allowing a helicopter to hover. Uh, yeah, right over, tolerance right over maybe. <laughs> tolerance maybe <laughs> is a competency. One of the expectations is I'll be right by your desk. That's right. <laughs> so you have to be honest with yourself. What kind yep. of person am I? What kind of manager am I? And, and seek people that fit that. You know, when I look at my own career, I have an eye for detail. Um, I prefer not to look at detail. I prefer my people look at it. But if I have any sense that you're not looking at the details, I'm going to be all over you. Right. Uh, I would rather hire someone, though, who's more detail-oriented me, than me, yeah. and then I can let go of it completely, and that's liberating. I love right. that. Let me, uh, let me interject the following question. Um, clearly, uh, at, at core... Your, your part is, is a, I, I would call it a back end, but that, that's not appropriate, uh, executive learning. But as an executive recruiter, a headhunter for, for people um, who, who may not know what executive recruiters are, the, the, um, at what level do peop, should people engage or what kind of person should engage the executive search community? Um, as opposed, I mean, it's sort of baseline. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to elevate this to Jack Webb, uh, to Jack Welsh, but uh, what, what, what is, is there a threshold in which the effort to go into hire, and I know we're hiring people, so I'm not being, um, I'm not being troublesome here, but at what, what, what point is an exec- executive recruiter an addition, a necessary, necessary addition to the team? S- I guess I'll start by saying we're not executive recruiters, so we're executive assessors. Okay. So we typically get brought in after a a recruiter or a company has identified their their finalist candidates, and our job is to give them the good housekeeping stamp of approval. I see. So you do not not have an... We don't do the search ourselves. We'll work with search firms, uh, and our job is to sit down with that candidate in a completely unbiased way since we're not paid whether or not that job is filled we're just paid on providing good information and we'll analyze and evaluate that person and say yes good fit or no bad fit for the role now that being said we do work with the search firms extensively and and the question really is in the course of the process in the course of the process that's the way you are usually brought in yep uh we and the executive search firms in a best practice are brought in at the time of the scorecard so don't ever think about building or, or, or hiring for a role until you've really thought through the scorecard. Okay. Uh, and if you plan to engage a, a search firm or GH Smart or any other uh, outsider or insider, for that matter, in the process of hiring for that position, you should bring them in right there at the beginning with the scorecard because everybody needs to be on the same page. That's right. your opportunity to have everybody on the same page. Uh, we then tend to drift into the background while the search firm digs does around. Does their thing. Does their thing. Now, let me, let me um, uh, again, interjection. The, the role of the devil's advocate in this process, we've had a number of books that have discussed the necessity in the executive suite of somebody who can ha- intelligently articulate other options than the course that the company is particularly going in, and that's a very important role. And I think what we've seen in 2008, and I'm not picking on 2008, but sometimes the, the, the lack of the devil's advocate on, on a board or in the executive suite led to, as we now know, disaster. I, I think uh, it's funny you say that. I think we have a financial crisis, to be sure, but I think more so we have a crisis at the board level 
and at the senior management level. I think our our economy is a reflection of people falling asleep at the switch when it comes to some of these key decisions. There's a lot of, uh, if you think about a traditional board, uh, there's a, a tendency to pick the insider or to hire the search firm to draw up a slate of, of industry insiders. Uh, there tends to be a broad consensus. You don't have that devil's advocate. Very easy to look at your CEO, your current CEO, and shrug your shoulders and say, well, you know, devil we have is better, the, better than the one we don't know. Right. Better, uh, the, what, uh, the devil we know is better than the one we don't know. We're not mixing up devil's advocates. Right? <laughs> right. That, maybe that's what put it in my here, mind. Right? Talking with Randy Street about the devil, so the devil's advocate and the devil this we know. This interview's taking some interesting turns. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. uh, but, I, you know, you really look at, at uh, the, the failures of CEOs and senior leaders in companies in 2008, yep. and I don't even think we've hit anywhere near the bottom. We're no. going to see many more ousters. Uh, there was a, a piece uh, recently that suggested that in down times, uh, twice as many CEOs lose their jobs as in good times. And I, I think in our experience, that's probably true. If that's the case, there are probably a hundred or more CEOs on the S&P 500 who need to polish their resumes because right. they're not going to be with us a year from now. And, and, and 2009 is starting off in that score. It's heading down <laughs> that path very, very quickly. very quickly. So I think we have a crisis at the board level. We have a crisis of management. We have a, we have a leadership crisis, right. which has uh, resulted in our uh, financial crisis, which, of course, is creating horrible economic times for all of us. And it's, it's really unfortunate because this is a question of leadership, first and foremost. Uh, there have uh, been great uh, just tragedies across boardrooms in America where you don't have the devil's advocate right. really pushing for a, a process. Instead, these CEOs are hired on gut feel. They're hired based on the good old boy network. They're hired because it was the next guy in the chain of command at the company. But nobody has sat back and said, well, wait a second. What is the scorecard? What are the outcomes we need for the next five years? Let's go find that CEO, that person. Right. Boards aren't doing this uh, by and large, and it's, it shows. And, and maybe not to divert too far, depart too far from this stream of, of, uh, of uh, delightful consciousness with uh, Randy Street. The book is Who, uh, subtitled, if you will, Solve Your Number One Problem, and that is Finding the Right Person to do what needs to be done. Maybe the American public in, in electing Barack Obama, in fact, did hire somebody who exhibited not only the leadership, but the ability to surround himself with devil's advocates. Uh, Secretary of State, one could argue, is a, <laughs> a point. I'm not going to play with that one. I don't know whether G.H. might. I know you're not from New York, so you didn't lose a senator. Um, you don't have that issue. But it is interesting uh, when you, you point to leadership that in his choice of people to surround his A-team, uh, those people who he has gone through a similar process um, with, with outcomes and, mm -hmm. and, and yep. uh, their, their political leanings being from different points on the compass may add something that had we had them, I'm not sure that it would have made much difference and we can get into a Bear Stearns, we can get into a Lehman, we can get into an AIG, sort of the hubris of companies that were built up over time and I would offer that Randy Street has better, could articulate that. And I'm going to ask him to in a minute. But, but it, politically, it looks like we, the, the, the only place that America has confidence right now in terms of leadership because of the way he has handled himself to date 
is the present. You make a really interesting point. So you, you note at the beginning, the book is not called who with a question mark. <laughs> right. It's who. Yeah. And it really is a matter of surrounding yourself with the right who. The, the people matter. The who matters. Uh, I think the American people, one of, one of the things that the American people became frustrated with in the Bush administration, particularly as we shifted from the first term to the second term, was an, an apparent um, discarding of the naysayers in his cabinet. You could argue, uh-huh. you know, a Colin Powell, you know, right. brilliant secretary of state. What on earth was Bush thinking to take him out or to nudge him out because he didn't have the... Um, uh, they didn't share their share views the necessarily, right. right? So his second term, he he surrounded himself with people who who uh, yesed him to death, and I think from the outside looking in, that was a that was awful, and and people noticed that. When you look at the election process itself, when did McCain really slip? It was in his election or selection of Sarah Palin, right. As a vice presidential yep. candidate, which didn't make sense to the Republican base. It didn't make sense to the Democrats. Nope. Nobody thought it made a whole lot of sense. And all of a sudden, the question people were that I heard people asking wasn't just, is she the right person? But what was McCain thinking? Right. And does that have any suggestion for how he'll build his cabinet when the time comes? Right. Meanwhile, we've, we're watching Obama do what Lincoln did 148 right. eight years ago. Right. Uh, whatever the math is. Yep. Uh, surrounding himself with uh, not just the yes men, but people who are going to challenge the thinking. I think that's a very it positive sign. It wasn't sign. 148, was it? Well, I don't know. When did Lincoln it, it do it? 1860, 1860 roughly. Yep. yep. Yeah, so yeah, I guess it is. The 148, close yeah. to 150 years ago. I was, I was missing the metric. I'm missing the metric. <laughs> it was Thank a while ago, well whatever done. it was. Well hey, done. I'm a not just about people. Fella. Math, too. <laughs> <laughs> But Lincoln, you know, that was one of the things that made him a great president was he was smart enough to surround himself with the very people who challenged him through the election process. Right. And Obama has uh, been a student of Lincoln's and is doing exactly the same thing. Whether it works, history will tell. We're still at that inflection point. But it is a positive sign that he acknowledges the importance of surrounding himself with the right who. Right. And people who were vetted. I think that uh, one of notwithstanding... McCain's selection of Palin, he didn't appear to know what he had gotten. Yeah, um, which was I, the I, biggest I, surprise, a, right? Yeah, I mean, I, people would say if, if he had a rationale and he'd been looking to her for a while, um, and, and certainly she interjected an enthusiasm uh, that I'm not sure Mitt Romney may have been a safer bet at the time when they were talking about things. But I, I, would, uh, I think a large portion of the American public said, well, that's fine, but what do you know about her? I mean, what, why, what's the reason? Where is... The GH Smart scorecard right. is such an important decision. Right. We, that's what we were thinking, too. <laughs> this is one case where we were sending the book out to the McCain camp and the, uh, the Obama camp. Uh, neither took us up on it. But if you really sit back and think about it, this process works. It, it is a vetting process. Huh. It begins with that scorecard, as we've talked about. And then there's a, an entire selection process around it, which takes the, uh, the wishy-washy gut feel... Uh, not well thought out right. th- uh, thinking on a selection, and it puts discipline and process around it, and it takes the, the guesswork out. Now, so you can make good an, decisions. As an evangelist, you must have been kind of upset that they, I mean, you guys had it right. Um, you, you've done intellectual studies on it. You've got, uh, you had a, notwithstanding 2008, and I'm not pinning that lack of leadership on G.H. Smart's selection of people that they actually <laughs> put in. That would be unfair and, cool yeah. and not, not appropriate. But, but it is true that, um, uh, I'm just curious, 
how do, who do, who would you go to in these campaigns uh, to try and convince them that um, you had a method that that would work? Well, you know, both camps had campaign managers. Right. We actually were engaged in a conversation uh, through uh, Inc. magazine, interestingly enough, potentially huh. to sit down with the Obama camp uh, in an interview format. This would have been fascinating and actually interview Obama. Uh, using this method. The same way that you talk about. The, uh, the same way method. we talk about in the book, the same way we sit down with a CEO. We sit down with CEOs of Fortune 50 companies right. uh, here in the U.S. and uh, like-sized companies around the world. We're sitting down with some pretty uh, accomplished people. Yep. And players. They're players. And it would have been fascinating to sit down with, with both candidates and really collect that data and share it with the American public. I, I don't know that either camp was feeling <laughs> super comfortable with that because it takes the spin machine and throws it out uh, right. at some level. It would have been an interesting exercise. Yeah, it would have been. It would have been. It probably would have introduced a small p politics onto the scorecard. You might have uh, had to have. I'm sure <laughs> that's right. The discussion would have, the politics would have shifted to the scorecard I, because sure. everybody's an A player at something, right? Yeah, so absolutely. as long as you design the scorecard, right? Just find right. your strength. <laughs> yeah. right. We can take Hillary, we'll worry about Bill later. Well, exactly. And interestingly you say that though, we actually, that's how we presented it was, look, uh, depending on what's on your scorecard, uh, you know, American public, dictates who you should elect because there's clearly there are things that Obama's better at there are clearly things that McCain's better at and depending on what's important to you uh really lay that out and that would help inform your decision at at uh at the polls but anyway missed opportunity okay. at scorecard. the moment we yep. have a scorecard and you mentioned the interview and and there are elements in the book about the 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 the, the, the interviews the, mm -hmm. the, this these are it always strikes me it um and and I have been subject to some of these tests that, that people take, and I don't know whether GH Smart supports some kind of uh, test to a personality fit or the wheel or Bill of Briggs. Uh, there are so many of them now, and I, I found some of them are remarkable in identifying what people's natural attributes are, what their learned attributes, how they can accommodate, how flexible and not flexible. Um, you, I, as I take it from the book, uh, your methodology uh, depends a lot on the interaction, the interview, getting to know people. Do you use testing? We don't. In okay. fact, uh, 50 years of industrial uh, and organizational psycho psychology suggests, and the research from, from that discipline suggests, that that testing is not predictive of job success. Okay. So those tests are very good at helping you think through team dynamics they're very poor when it comes to actually making a selection. Uh, we do, however, have clients who use them. Okay. And what we suggest is... Because it has worked for them. It, well, here's what works. If the test says uh, Bob is a terrible fit, then tr trust the test. <laughs> Cut Bob out okay. of the process. Save yourself the interview time. You're right. done. But if the test comes back and says Bob is a wonderful fit then continue the process. Okay. Our advice then is say, okay, great. The test has not screened this person out, but don't assume the test is right in terms of whether Bob should be screened in. Okay. Go on to the interview at this point. And our process is, it's an interview. It's a... Stop there. I just want to finish the thought, if I may. Don't mean to be quite so abrupt, but it's an interesting subject. When you say the test, um, do you advocate in, in the, the testing that the employer 
and the employee both are tested to measure that fit, or you, you that's that's not well. Here's that. where the I, problem I comes. I know I know that you, that's not something that's in your toolkit, if you will, that for a variety of reasons. But in the case when it is used, do you do you want it from both sides? And tell me about that. You you have to, and this is where most folks make that mistake. So for these tests to have any value whatsoever, it, they have to be calibrated to the organization. Okay, that typically requires the input of a professional typically a psychologist, an industrial psychologist wow. or something. Yep. Uh, most organizations don't. They just use the test out of a box. Right. It's not calibrated. Yep. Uh, the, you know, the testers will say that they're calibrated up against a database of hundreds of thousands of people, right. but that's not your organization. Right. And because of that calibration gap, the tests are already going to give you a, a false positive or, or a negative where right. uh, had you actually calibrated it to your organization, you might have a fighting chance, although that's very hard to do. Now, in, in, in getting then to the interview, which mm. is, which is your, part of your methodology, um, it, in, in, it, interesting because people always like to hear what the, the voodoo hiring methods, uh, <laughs> right. a lot of what the voodoo hiring methods, and uh, I don't have, obviously I have not read the book in total, but, right. but I, I'm intrigued by the subject matter. And I'm always intrigued when somebody has, gives a top 10 list. Yeah, you know? yeah, so the, the top, top 10 voodoo t- hiring t- methods. The voodoo hiring methods do have a lot to say about not only the interview, but the preconceived notions that people do and sort of the behavioral issues. And let me, let me ask, you and I'm going to ask myself a question and, and put it to you in this way: Don't people have a tendency once they have achieved that level of excellence where they where they are the C, where they are the CEO, if mm. you will? Um, don't they have a natural tendency to do that which had been successful for them in the past? Absolutely, yeah, you bet. They they but do. That's part of your voodoo's. That's part of the voodoo's, and uh, I love the title of Marshall Goldsmith's book: "What Got You Here Won't Get You There." Yeah. And the, the premise, uh, and we see this all the time in, in, in our work as well, is the very things that enabled you to be successful historically uh, may actually be your biggest liabilities as you ascend the corporate ladder or the political ladder, for that matter. It's just it's a different set of skills required all along the way. And the leaders that don't rec- recognize that and change actually do get themselves into trouble, particularly in the hiring realm, where they probably weren't as good at it as they thought they were in the first place. <laughs> so most uh, it's fun because in uh, workshops we do, we, uh, we ask people to check boxes next to each of these 10 voodoo hiring practices. Right. And by and large, everybody in the room will check three or four be, be, of these things. Now. Yeah, absolutely. Now. Yeah. You know, raise your hand if you've checked at least five of these boxes. Half of the room will raise their That's hand. Right. We all do these things. Yeah. I used to do these things. Yeah. Used because, to. I like to hear you say that. <laughs> right, right. And, Thankfully, and the, the person who used to do these things was Randy Street. Until he <laughs> Thank got, you for until that. He got, <laughs> until he got religion. The book is who, with a not a period, but a, a downflection at the end of it. Solve your no, number one problem. Randy is co-author with Jeff Smart who together are in GH Smart and Company, and they are a management assessment firm. And we are talking with Randy today here in New York early in 2009 in a very interesting subject matter because if, if, the, if one can say that, uh, I was going to say leadership, and I'm going to correct myself, that we've had some lousy outcomes mm. in 2008. We have indeed. Uh, no one will argue with that. <laughs> we've had some real <laughs> lousy outcomes. And there are still a lot of people who are hired in 2008 who contributed to those absolutely and yeah, now we're looking right. to and I'd, I'd like to segue through the interview to ask randy street what 
what did you guys learn out of? I mean, I'm jumping ahead of the interview. We can go back and fold that in. But when, when early in 2009, and you reflect here in New York, you're in a hotel. You don't want to be here necessarily. Rather be with your family. Um, what what do you got to do different? What, what what went wrong in terms of the outcomes and leadership? We've, we've hinted at it, but I'm I'm asking you for your reaction. What 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 went wrong? In the people business. In the people business, I think what went wrong in 2008 is the same thing that's been going wrong for forever, which is we think we understand the people that we hire far better than we, we do. Bingo, and we, I agree. And we don't really take the time to think about what has to happen in an organization, whether it's a business or a nonprofit or a a church or synagogue or in the, re- the political realm. It doesn't matter. It's all the same. We don't take the time to really think about what, what success really looks like. And I, I think individual, uh, what we saw certainly in 2008, and 2008, by the way, is simply the result of 20 years of, uh-huh. of levering up. It's, it's, there's nothing special about 2008 other than the leverage bubble popped right. in both the housing market and the in the debt markets. Right, uh, and, and uh, as I want to say uh, often, that uh, if if they were packaging bad fish meal <laughs> in in China, which then gave to diseased fish, which they sent to us, we certainly packaged some diseased mortgages and sent them around the world. We did. So it this is this was not just us. Uh, there was a different elements in the financial and manufacturing and life food chain in which the world poisoned the world. Yeah, and it's 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 very sad because we all partook in that poison along the way. I mean, every, every homeowner who, who took that interest-free loan, in a sense, was a part of, of partaking in that yep. fish poison, right? Yep. So clearly the policies were bad. The, the leadership in our, our banking system made horrible decisions. There are very few who actually took the time to think through and and wonder what would happen when the music stops and everyone has to find a chair and that grand scheme of musical chairs no one really thought the music would stop well it did and there were far too few chairs and uh, and we're all suffering as a result and i think we're going to suffer for a long time to come uh it it it's a an absolute lack of of real uh compass driven uh, moral leadership. It was a, a body of people, and I, I, I throw everybody in this right. uh, in this category yeah. who got caught up. Well, in, and you've dealt with them. We've dealt with a, a lot of them, right? Absolutely. Even today, when we're looking back on these leaders, they did a lot of the right things, and yet they had some real crucial flaws. And I'm wondering whether fold into your commentary on what went wrong in 2008. Was it a failure to under to redo the scorecard? Was it a failure to 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 understand mid-course corrections? I mean, wh- why did we have a train wreck? Yeah, I mean, you think about the credit crisis and, and everything that... And I want an answer here, Randy. Yeah, I know I you do. I, I know. I'm Let's looking see. at you because I like the way you sound. I know your experience. <laughs> I know where you've been. And that, that's that's the advantage we have here, McLaughlin Work, is peaking and, and asking for your opinion. What was the question again? No, well, just, so kidding, why, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we're 200 miles outside of Topeka, and we're heading for a train wreck. What are we? We are heading for a train wreck, right? So, 
the, the, ultimately, organizations who lost sight of why they were in business, which ultimately is the leader's responsibility, that's probably the number one thing on their scorecard, are the ones that led the train wreck. While there are still organizations out there who hung on to their values uh, for dear life. I take Wells Fargo as an example, mm-hmm. which is a bank out in uh, San Francisco, one of the few that has survived. And if you sit down with their CEO, you learn that they never got caught up in this, um, in the, uh, the, the the swaps and all of the, the crazy instruments that were being traded because they didn't make sense to the values and the mission of Wells Fargo. Uh, as a result, Wells Fargo has survived. They're thriving. They're picking up the assets of so many other banks. Uh, that is one example. There are not a ton of them out there in the financial services industry, I think there sadly. Are two, maybe. I mean, sort of Bank of America. Although that I noticed that uh, they, the head of Bank of America, was one of the potential hit lists for right. for being outed. In, Absolutely, in yeah. That was just in the papers today, I yeah. think. And in fact, if uh, I would have agreed with you, uh, with one exception, which is if you if you look at how. Um, how even Bank of America has represented itself since the crisis. There was a lot of hubris and big right. talk going on yep. there. Yep. Uh, you know, oh, we saw this coming, and yep. we got out. Well, guess what? Uh, that That's not particularly great leadership either, and I think that Bank of America may suffer a little bit. And I, I don't know this. Right. I have no inside information, but I don't think that story has finished playing out. I don't think any of the financial services. None of it has. Right. None of it has globally. Right. None of it has globally. A long way to so, go. I, you know, ultimately, uh, the responsibility of a leader of any organization is to uh, is to take care of that organization. They have a duty in business. It's a fiduciary duty. In politics, there's a stewardship uh, for the American public, at least in the U.S. or whatever country it is. There is a duty that leaders have. And I think far too many leaders fall into the, the old traps, the siren songs sing, and the, uh, the pride and the ego and the hubris all comes to play, and they stop taking care of the organization. They start chasing something else, the almighty dollar, uh, yep. their, uh, their title, their position, their, their press, whatever it is. They lose sight of who they're really supposed to be taking care of, which is the job of a leader. It's to take care of the people and the organization. We have far too few leaders who actually do that. Uh, and that's Randy Street. Uh, the book is Who. The subject matter is hiring the right people for the future. Um, as we move gears here in uh, 2009, uh, how has how have you recalibrated your leadership scorecards? How, how has the dialogue changed with these people? Um, it's a great to, question. To be where, so you can get us out of this mess by yeah. 2020. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And 2020 may not be all that inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope I, we'll, we'll get a chance to talk. <laughs> that's right. We'll can make a mid-court correction. Uh, in there, see so where we are. Here's what we're seeing. The, yeah. the, the positive side of what we're seeing is the crisis has served as a wake-up call to boards, to CEOs, to leadership teams around the world, not just here in the U.S. Uh, the... The smart companies, uh, and I like to think the ones that we're spending time with tend to be the smart companies. Right. They're, they're bringing us in to help them go back to some basics. Uh, why are we in business, and do we have the right people in the right seats doing the right things to achieve that mission mm-hmm. and the specific outcomes, the specific business goals that we're in business to achieve? Right. Uh, now, there's some cleanup that they have to do. They're at Some of the boards are asking some tough questions. Do we really believe the CEO can lead us through the storm? 
Uh, I think there are a lot of CEOs who are not well suited to lead their organizations through the storm. They may have been great to lead them up, the, you know, to, to grow while, the, while times were great. <laughs> but when it comes time to really uh, hunkering down, uh, a lot of these folks are mismatched. The strong organizations are taking a hard look at their people, starting with the top, uh, but really all throughout the organization, and making sure they have the right people in the right seats. Uh, and this is a, this is uh, we're seeing some big dislocations. Uh, you know, the unemployment numbers from yep. the end of the year, as you know, Painful. were as as big as or as large as anything since 1945. Yep. I think that's a knee jerk reaction. It's a it's also tragic for the economy because a lot of that is probably an overreaction. Uh, but as that resets, people, uh, whether employed or unemployed, and I've got a lot of family and friends affected by this. Sure, this is, everybody, everybody does. does. Everybody's life has changed. Uh, I think folks are, are taking a hard look at themselves as well and asking, what am I best in the world at? Right. I want that job. Right. And the companies are asking the same thing. I need people who are the best in the world at this and that yep. and the other thing there. And so there's some shifting going on. Yeah, I, let, let me just, uh, and, and, and I, I knew that you were about to continue, but I wanted to, uh, I wanted to throw in something that I, I, I was hot about uh, last week, and, and that is I think that one of the reasons that the boards stop, stop myself, I don't think anybody has a clue. I think this <laughs> problem is like somebody picking up a Rubik's Cube for the first time <laughs> 12 years ago. Is right. It, Eight colors, four, eight sides. It, it, I, I don't, where do I start? And, and part of the board issue, point of a question here to Randy Street, um, part of the board issue is uh, the scorecard, the, the outcomes. How do you define an outcome? I mean, John Thane did it for Merrill Lynch in about 48 hours, mm. which was what we got right. to save the franchise. Right, over the weekend. Gonna, over the weekend, That's September, right. and, and, and th- that was very clear. And he, he didn't have a lot of time to think about it. And, a lot, you know, he, damned if he do and damned if he don't, but damned he did. Yep. Um, but uh, who's in charge? CEOs in charge, they've got to step up. And what John Thane did actually was was a great thing for Merrill because not all of the uh, not all of his peers were doing right. exactly that, right? right? Which which we saw play out. CEOs in charge, ultimately accountable. And but do do people have a clue? Do, do you do you know where we're going? Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't mean that in in a, in a, I mean in an intellectual sense. I, I'm just I'm struck by the by the dialogue that you hear between. Board members looking at their CEO. The CEO does have a plan. They don't like the plan. I mean, nothing could be more obvious than the unbundling of what John Reed and Sandy Weil did not that long ago mm-hmm, to right. create, which was sort of the Harold Janine of its time, right. the, the, the conglomerate, the financial services supermarket. And now that is being thrown literally into the dustbin Perhaps while we speak, right? <laughs> That's probably right. It isn't? Don't we see that in business? The pendulum swings yeah. both ways: uh, centralization, decentralization, outsourcing, insourcing. Uh, the trends uh, happen over and over, and I think we are the we are at a point where that pendulum has swung hard. Uh, I think you're right, though. I think uh, most organizations, for most organizations, they don't have a clue. But we have seen uh, probably three categories of organizations. Okay. Uh, oper- I like the way it's crisp like that. Very, there you go. And I'm not going to interrupt you. So you well, can yeah, let me three. hit these three, and you can react to it. We see opportuni- opportunists, 
uh, retrenchers and survivalists. Mm -hmm. And let me describe what those three are for a second. So the opportunists are the ones that actually have strong leadership. They have great boards in place. Uh, They know where they're going. They saw this coming. They're prepared for it. Their cost structure is in line. And while their competitors are down, they are going to rise. Uh, it's a small chunk of the market. Uh, we've had many conversations with CEOs of these companies. Uh, these are the companies to bet on in the future, and it's exciting to see what they're doing. And it all comes down again to that 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 leader that the board put in place. The CEO uh, is the right person at the right time, and now they're going to take advantage. The second category are the retrenchers, and the retrenchers are those who are not in dire straits, but they're realizing that there's an enormous dislocation in the market. And they've got to shuffle the deck. And that may mean removal of the CEO. It may mean uh, layoffs, unfortunately. It also means hiring, though, as well. Uh, it may mean simply take, the, take a good look at the people that you have in the organization and ask, is everybody doing the absolute right things? We may need to move folks around just so that the right activities are happening uh, to, 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 to do well or at least to, to hold water. To survive. To, well, the survivalists are our Sorry. third category. Right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, those are the ones that were caught flat-footed and are, are just in absolute uh, purge mode. And most of them, you know, 70% of the average company's P&L is people. So where do you go when you've got to cut costs? You go to people. This is where we're seeing the mass layoffs and the tens of thousands that are rippling through the economy and what are driving these, these massive unemployment numbers. And I don't think a lot of those companies are going to make it. Yeah, they, they may make some... Uh, you know, deathbed changes, but a lot of those companies are going to fail. We see them in the papers every day. Uh, the retrenchers will be fine. They're just going to be down for a while. And the opportunists will be the companies we're talking about a decade from now. Yep. Uh, remember when they were just this little old company and all of a sudden they're the ones that there are setting the standard. There will be enormous wealth made in this country. By those companies. Of, right out of the ashes. And Absolutely. Very clear. Um, although Cap- it, it, capital it, capitalism needs to be brought to ashes every now and then, yeah. right? And, 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 and that, you know, if you if you read uh, beyond the headlines to the thinkers about it, that mm-hmm. unfortunately is that uh, it, it is almost a definition of capitalism that it doesn't recalibrate until it hits an excess point mm-hmm. that triggers something. It's, and there, you know, think about the bubbles we've had over the years. We've we just had this bubble with the debt markets. We had the internet bubble. If you go back to two thousand and one, uh, we had the um, uh, what was the bubble in eighty seven? There was a run up in the market. Well, there was a crash. There was a crash, <laughs> but there was a bubble. I think there was a bubble related to that crash. <laughs> there may have been, um, but there was no. Interestingly, after that, because that was at a time when I was working for now an organization that doesn't exist, an investment bank. Um, but uh, there was almost no equity issued for close to three or four years. Mm, interesting, you know, right? From eighty seven to ninety, so there was a whole group of experts. Nobody knew how to do and. A, uh, an initial public offering in the equity markets. Um, and we're seeing the same thing now, right? Exactly. I mean, now, I mean, what's really sad, and this is what, what uh, most concerns me about our recovery, is healthy companies, the opportunists that we're talking about, right. they can't get credit. Right. So they can grow. Their business models are sound. The market's there. 
they can't get the cash they need to grow. Right, which they absolutely need. Uh, G.H. Smart, opportunist, a, a retrencher, or a survivalist? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> opportunist all the way. <laughs> absolutely. Do, we, do you uh, find the business has in, increased for you in here? It has. It, it has. has. Yeah, interestingly okay. enough. So, our, you know, historically our business was serving the private equity industry. That uh, The deal flow dried up in early 08. So right. we haven't seen a whole lot of big deals going on right. uh, and haven't been a part of you know, 100% of zero is still zero. So sure. uh, that that activity stopped. Uh, what we have seen, though, has been uh, boards and CEOs really taking a hard look at their teams. Right. Let's do a talent review. Let's assess, do we have the right people in this team? So that's really where our work has shifted okay. on the one hand. And then on the executive learning side, and thanks in part to the book, we get calls every day from from companies who... Uh, want to learn how to do this themselves. They don't want us to do it for right. them. They want to learn how to right. do it, and we'll come in and help them do that. Because people realize, wow, you know what? Uh, the uh, the things that we thought we were basing our success on have just f- fallen out from under us. Yeah. The rug's been pulled. What do we have? What are our assets? Well, the first thing we have is our people. Do we have the right people? Right. And then, of course, you think about all of the other assets. And Strong leaders know they've got to have great people to be successful. Our work uh, rests on that. Okay. L- last, uh, last observation. I don't, I don't say okay flippingly as, as if I wasn't listening to what you say, but it, it strikes me that uh, what has made this uh, particular period different, uh, one is the global impact. Mm, which which right. I'm not which I don't want to address with you, but I guess okay. um, um, do, you, uh, do you work? Obviously, you work with global companies. Yes, we do. But do you find that the application of your methods are as valuable uh, for them? Just as valuable anywhere you go in the world, because the methods are based on uh, basic human behavior. Right. Now, every country has cultural differences. There's some legal differences, so there's some adjustments that you have to make, but. Uh, you know, you read the book. It's not rocket science. No. Uh, we're, we well, have, it's the people condition. It's it, that's all it I mean, is. You could be marriage counselors. Yeah. I well, mean, in, in large measure, you are. I mean, <laughs> I'm not signing up for that. <laughs> no, I, I know, and I'm not going to go to globalization or to hire you for that. Uh, the, la- the last question is is really a question of confidence. Um, you have a young a young family, and I, I've got a, a borderline millennial. Uh, this doesn't seem to affect them. In, in, it, it has an impact so that they, they know their, their 20-year, 10-year life, things have changed. When you structure the, the next, you're dealing with an, with an older group, mm. a more accomplished group. These are the people who are hiring. Um, when they're hiring, and I'm not looking for a long diatribe on this, but I'm curious. When they're hiring these new millennials, is, is, there a, is the new people entering the workforce or people who have been in the workforce who or who will have seen the failure of leadership in 2008. Right. What, what, what will happen to those children who are those young business people who, in fact, were abused in 2008? I think you actually just hit the nail on the head. They're, the reset button has been pushed, and the up-and-coming generations are, are, will be the ones who clean up the mess. Yeah. Uh, we've seen that over the centuries, really. Yeah, There's exactly. One generation messes up, and the next generation comes and cleans up. And that, that's not to be flip, but the reality is... Uh, the Generation X and, and Generation Y is rising in the ranks, and those are the folks that are the, the so-called high potentials that right. have watched all of this happen and will be the people who step up over the next decade. And I think it is a decade, maybe longer, uh, for this really to, to play out. Yeah. But that's what's going to happen. 
the the old habits uh, of the older generation, sadly, are are going to be much harder to change. The companies with the younger leaders who want to make the shift from what they've just watched right. happen, those will be the ones who who we see rise and and, and who are not invested in legacy thinking. I mean, the legacy thinking, it's one the one thing to talk about it, it's another to purge the mind of, of uh, 30, 40, 20, 30, 40 years in business right. to get where you are. I mean, think, think of the great, uh, the, the big successes in the last decade. Take a, a, a Google just as an example. Sure. I mean, uh, Schmidt is an older uh, generation now, but it wasn't founded by no. you know, folks like that. No. So the, the entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well in right. America. And that is that is good news for us all because that's ultimately what keeps this this machine humming. Absolutely, uh, Randy Street. Uh, time unfortunately is up. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed this. Thanks, Randy. Paul McLaughlin, The Work Walk, your audio guide to the workplace. McLaughlin at work. Drop us a line, an email line that is Paul at themclaughlincompany.com. Be happy to hear from you. Looking forward to. Next week, furthering episodes of McLaughlin at Work, always interesting material about the workplace. And if you haven't, check out the archives here on webtalkradio.net. We're always there for you, and we'll keep on doing what we do so well. Listen in next week.